Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 39. We'll study the whole chapter today, verses 1 to 18. Jeremiah chapter 39, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to the word of our of God. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate, Nergal Sar Ezer, Samgar Nehu, Sar Sechem, the Rabsaris, Nergal Sar Ezer, the Rabmag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went towards the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, Nergalsar Ezra, the Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king in Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the, of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we now pray your blessing on our study of this dreadful chapter, Lord, but one, Lord, that urges us to that salvation you have made possible, indeed have offered in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Bless us as we study Jeremiah 39. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jeremiah 39 brings us to that event we've been waiting for throughout the book, the fall of the city of, J of Jerusalem and the exile of its people. 
And the first clear intention that God intended to do this comes all the way back in chapter 6, where Jeremiah foretold a siege mount against Jerusalem so that God would make you a desolation. Jeremiah's ministry started in 627 B.C. That's from early in his ministry. It must have been sometime around then. Forty years earlier, Jeremiah had foretold this very dreadful event. And between then and now, 587 B.C., uh, when the fall comes, the Lord had exerted an enormous amount of energy in trying to bring his people to repentance that this judgment might be averted. He had threatened them through Jeremiah. He had wooed them. He had reasoned with them. But it was all to no avail. Christopher Wright notes, Jerusalem had blindly trusted in the great traditions of Israel's past, the land, the covenant, the temple, the election, the law. But they would not listen. They would not listen in obedience to God who addressed them persistently through this prophet and many others before him. And so what Jeremiah, together I think with his readers, long had dreaded, now takes place. The Babylonians break through Jerusalem's wall. They take the city. They burn it. They take the people into exile. Well, the fall of the city of Jerusalem stands as one of the greatest and most dreadful judgments in the Bible. It joins Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the perishing of the Exodus generation in the desert as signal moments of God's outpoured wrath on human disobedience and rebellion. And yet the fall of Jerusalem in some respects is different from most of those other judgments because ultimately the Lord is not not destroying, but he's actually saving his people. The prophet Habakkuk had prayed in wrath, remember mercy, Habakkuk 3.2. And Jeremiah chapter 39 shows that the Lord did. In destroying Jerusalem, the Lord put an end to generations of presumptuous unbelief. That's where the establishment was denying the gospel in this hypocritical self-righteousness. Well, it was going to end. And the people, though they would suffer terribly, would go into Babylon where, remember what God had told them in chapter 9, he will give them a future and a hope once they had been weaned from the crippling sin of idol worship. And so horrible as the fall of Jerusalem was as a display of God's just wrath, this fiery end of the old covenant paves the way for the new covenant in which God's Son comes and he provides the forgiveness that the people need as he bears God's wrath for us on the cross. Well, as God's wrath falls on Jerusalem by the hand of Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar, the the book of Jeremiah comes to its climax with respect to the doctrine of God's judgment. As we've been preaching and studying Jeremiah, the theme of judgment has come up quite a lot. And here we see its full expression. And as a result, we we find ourselves today with an important opportunity to reflect on the why of the judgment of God. What's the rationale for divine judgment? Now, this is important because of, I'm not sure the unpopularity is the right word to use, but because of the unpopularity, the unpalatability of the biblical doctrine of judgment, not just for the unbelieving world, but for many believers. Uh, C.S. Lewis 
a number of years ago, published an essay, a very influential essay, where he talked about how people today no, no longer are even comfortable with the idea of justice. Instead, there is a humanitarian theory of punishment, where instead of a punishment for wrongdoing, there is therapy for sickness, for pathology. Let me quote Lewis. He says, under the modern view, to punish a man because he deserves it, and as much as he deserves it, that is considered barbarous and immoral. Instead of just deserts, we have the notion of rehabilitation. In place of guilt, we emphasize impairment. Uh, the criminal often is deemed not really to blame for the heinous thing he did. Uh, I'm sure you see it. It's kind of the classics of the genre when some mass murderer is up on, uh, for trial and his mother will appear. And she'll assure us if we really knew him, he has a very good heart. And I'm a little skeptical about that, given his wicked and heinous deeds. And, but in our view today, it's, he's the victim, not the criminal. He's the victim of societal influences or perhaps childhood experiences. Well, we need to reflect on the fact that the Bible is in stark contrast in that it emphasizes the ideas of personal responsibility and objective guilt. Now, we're not denying that people are influenced. We're not denying that people are themselves victims, that we're influenced by maybe childhood experiences. That's, that's what we usually ascribe it to. Or, or even deeper, we know that there's an, a corrupt human nature, which, of course, more than contributes to this wickedness. But according to the Bible, at the judgment seat of God, possessing corrupt inclinations will not serve as an argument against his justice. Revelation 20, verse 12, depicts the final judgment in which the books are open. And those books record the deeds of every person. Revelation 20, 12 says, all were judged by what was written in the books. Personal responsibility, objective guilt, according to what they had done. Now, many people today, I think one of the arguments against the idea of justice is they think there's corruption, there's incompetence, the justice system doesn't always work the way it should, but that cannot be charged of God. Oh no, his justice is both fair and competent. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Personal responsibility and guilt. Now, according to the Bible, then, there are several reasons why it is important for God to judge. Uh, the first reason that God judges lies in his own nature. We think of the attributes of God, and one of the attributes of God is that he is just. What is God like? Well, he's, he's loving. That's one thing we say about God. He's faithful. He's merciful. God is just. And because of his justice, there must be a judgment for all sin. David wrote in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, and he feels indignation every day. I still kind of like the old King James Version. He is angry with the wicked every day. And that's because our sins, we need to realize that first and foremost, our sins are committed against God and against his law. Now, I'm not saying we don't sin against one another, but the primary offense, and it is a personal offense to God, is to him and his holy rule and to his law. And so Psalm 82, 8 summons him, Arise, O God, judge the earth. And the righteous judge answers, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Romans 12, verse 19. 
And so God is just, and by judgment, he identifies himself with what is just and right so that, so that uh, justice triumphs over evil. You know, I mentioned most people today aren't comfortable with justice, but there is a class of people who crave for justice, and that's the victims of evil and of wickedness. You had someone in your family who was murdered or violently abused, some gross injustice. Oh, you crave that justice would be done, that the wrong would be set right. And one of the great frustrations is that so often it doesn't seem like it is even possible for there to be justice in our world. But God will, in the final judgment, he will set things right. Leon Morris writes, it's unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil would last forever. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of, authoritatively, decisive, and finally. And the reason it will is because God is just. Now, another reason why God judges sin is to uphold and establish and to vindicate his sovereign rule against the rebellion of men and women. A.W. Pink writes, God is angry against sin because sin is a rebelling against his authority. And so insurrectionists against God's government will be made to feel how great that majesty is which they despise. How dreadful is that threatened wrath they so little regarded. You think of how often in the New Testament, I think of uh, Luke 19.27, one example where Jesus describes the ungodly as enemies of mine. In that verse he says, enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. And for that, they are severely judged. And so God judges sin because he is just. And also because sin is a rebellion against his rule. And then thirdly, in order to glorify his holy nature. Judgment has a positive effect of glorifying the holiness of God. Now, judgment is a display, therefore, of a morally perfect and holy God. Stephen Charnock says this, divine holiness is the root of divine justice and divine justice is the triumph, the glorifying of divine holiness. If it weren't for God's justness, we would scarcely even know what holiness is. Uh, we're, we're, we're so far from being holy, we don't encounter real holiness. We, we even doubt that there is someone who actually cares bitterly against all evil and sin. And it's when we see God judging sin that we see that he is holy. We see that he, he is glorious in his moral perfection. Jerusalem bore the Lord's name. Israel was the Lord's people. So here's the question. What kind of deity would be the God of so corrupt and debased a people as Old Covenant Israel had become? What must the Babylonian, for instance, think of Israel's God, given the infidelity with which Zedekiah had broken his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the answer and the vindication of God's holiness comes in the judgment of Jerusalem. Likewise, people today so casually, even habitually, blaspheme the name of the holy God and they sin flagrantly before him without the slightest bit of fear. But there is a coming day. There was a coming day for Jerusalem. There is a coming day for all the world, the final judgment. And there God will glorify the luster of his holiness before all the world. Wilhelmus of Brockel, speaking of that coming day, said, How this should cause the hair of the ungodly to stand on to end for fear, for it will be a dreadful day for them.
Well, let's look at the story of Jerusalem's fall because it is a dreadful day when God's judgment falls on the wicked city, on its faithless king, on its guilty people. And this event brought to a crashing end the Old Covenant. And it provides a foretaste. It is a dress rehearsal for the final judgment that is yet to come. Now briefly, we are told the basic facts of the Babylonian siege. Verse 1, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Now that's 18 months. There was a brief respite, you remember. About a year earlier, the Egyptians had come north, and Nebuchadnezzar removed his army, but that didn't last long. The siege went back. It was a total of 18 months until finally, in July of 587 B.C., a breach was made and the city was conquered. Now, what is not told us here is the horrific suffering of the people of Jerusalem, particularly in the final months and weeks of that siege, especially because of the inevitable plague of starvation. But Jeremiah's book of Lamentation gives us a number of details. As, as famine strikes and the people become desperate, Lamentations 111, all her people groan as they search for bread, they trade their treasures for food. Okay, things are pretty bad when you're trading you know, the dinette set that was given to you at your wedding. All those wedding gifts are going for pieces of bread. Clearly, we've got a problem. We're getting to be desperate. But it gets worse. Lamentations 2.11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And then even more wretched scenes become written on the weeping mind of the prophet. Lamentations 4.10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And so this fall of the city is accompanied by intense suffering of the people. They are broken by the judgment of God. And when the defense of Jerusalem breaks, what happens then is the leaders of the Babylonian administration, they enter the city to take it over. We see this in verse 3. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sarezer, the Samgar. Nabushar Sechem, the Rabsaris. Nergal Sarezer, the Rabmag. These are Babylonian names drawn from the names of Babylonian gods for the most part. They have titles attached to them, together with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the scene vividly. He writes, The battering ram took its last run at the walls, darts from the enemy's siege mounds, arched into the midnight sky, and struck walls. And then five Babylonian princes marched through the streets of Jerusalem, their faces illuminated by the flames of destruction. Now, as these officials take their seats in the gates of the city, they're declaring a new administration. We don't know exactly where this middle gate was, but we know what this means. They're now in charge. It's under, they've conquered it. It's now under their direction. 
And meanwhile, the former ruler, Zedekiah, he sees this, and, and he and a few of his soldiers who were left, they sneak through a hole in the wall. We, we don't know where that was either. It was on the west, so they go out in the valley the, towards, the, towards the west, towards the Araba. That's the, the fertile area to the west of Jerusalem. And they, they're trying to get away, but they do not get far. Oh, no, Nebuchadnezzar had very little trouble rounding them up. Verse 5, the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They got pretty far, but not far enough. And Zedekiah's failed escape reminds us that we cannot flee the judgment of God. There is no way to escape the judgment and wrath of God. Phil Riken comments on how people today, they think they can escape the final judgment. They hear it preached. They hear witnesses. They read of it from the Bible, but they think they'll escape it. They, he writes this, they doubt the personal judge, return of Jesus Christ to judge the world. They, they hope the, the wrath of God in the Bible is exaggerated. They deny the existence of hell. They think they're good enough to get into heaven. They think in any case, they will slip out the garden door and run for dear life. And if you're that way, if you're thinking like Zedekiah, you are mistaken. And this dreadful mistake imperils the souls of those who will not come to the Lord for pardon in advance. Well, after his capture, Zedekiah is brought before Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah. Now, Riblah is about 100 miles north of the city, and it seems that that was actually the Babylonian field headquarters. It, it seems likely that despite an initial appearance, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do the siege. He was at 18, not going to hang around for 18 months of siege. He's got generals for that. And so he's in his headquarters up there in Riblah, and Zedekiah is brought before him for the interview that Zedekiah so long had rightly feared. Because he will receive from Nebuchadnezzar a terrible judgment for the crime of treason of which he was guilty. Remember, he had become king. He didn't have to be king. He accepted the crown from the hands of Nebuchadnezzar that he would be a loyal vassal. They could just do their own thing, but they had to be loyal. And he didn't do that. He was scheming the whole time. We've been seeing it in Jeremiah. And now with this final rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar, how many how many resources he expended? He spent a year and a half, not to mention transit, besieging the city. Great loss of extent of expense. And he will severely judge Zedekiah of the house of David. Well, uh, Jeremiah had warned him of this. He told him in the previous chapter, really just a couple of weeks earlier, that if he did not surrender, even then he could still surrender and he would live. You, you shall not escape from their hand, though, if you don't surrender. What Jeremiah did not tell him, maybe he did not know, were the gruesome details of his punishment. We're told that Zedekiah's eyes were gouged out. That is a very severe, uh, savage, personal punishment. He's rendered blind as his punishment. But oh, before he is, is, is marched off in chains for a lifetime prison in Babylon, he's going to see the slaughter of his sons and of his officials. That's what we're told. They are slaughtered, the sons, together with the nobles. Now, this word slaughter is normally used for the butchering of animals. And yes, that does suggest that there was a great deal of brutality, of barbarity afflicted upon the sons of Nebuchadnezzar 
and his officials, by the way, undoubtedly the very officials who had been urging him to engage in the mad folly that had caused all this. And Nebuchadnezzar acted in wrath towards the faithless servant who had rebelled, and he treated him with terrible severity. And the fact is, again, that Zedekiah was guilty. And whatever we think of Nebuchadnezzar's severity, the truth is that justice, this is what judgment is, it's justice being done. And justice is done upon Zedekiah. And of course, the great tragedy is it didn't have to happen. The Lord had sent Jeremiah to plead with him that he would repent. He would promised him protection and salvation if he trusted and obeyed. Uh, up until fairly shortly before these very days, as chapter 38 shows. And this perseverance of the Lord towards Zedekiah reminds us of the patience of the Lord in his mercy for you, for me, for sinners. Peter writes, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. People say, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why isn't there a final judgment? One reason is because of the patience of God. The long stuff, the gospel's going forth. You say it's being rejected, but, but he is an amazingly gracious, merciful God. He is long-suffering. On the other hand, we see the folly of Zedekiah. And it is a warning to anyone who has heard the Bible's teaching. Yes, those unpopular teachings, like the Bible's teaching on sin and guilt and judgment, but also of the atoning blood of Jesus, the free offer of salvation by a sovereign God of grace, And yet people neglect that offer of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, the folly. Let me ask you, is that true of you? Are you following in the ruinous tracks of Zedekiah, his mad rush into condemnation? Well, if you are, when your judgment comes, and come it will, God will not only condemn you, for sins of which you are guilty, but you will receive that condemnation knowing you could have avoided it all if you only had responded in faith to the word of God and its offer of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus taught an awful lot about the final judgment, and he said that God will throw the condemned into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew thirteen forty-two. And that's what Jerusalem, the city, becomes a fiery furnace because the conquerors, they put it to the torch. Verse 8, the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Now, a city was burned because of angry justice and to make an example of it. The walls of the city like this were torn down so that it would no longer be a fortress for rebellion. And while Jerusalem's fire would burn out in time, And Jesus warns of sinners being cast into hell. And he says that there, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, verse 48. Well, the king and the city have received justice. And so the final act of Jerusalem's fall involves the judgment of the people. Verse 9. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. They had rejected God and his law. They'd broken his covenant, and so they are expelled from the promised land. That's what's going on here. 
They had, God had made covenant with them, and, and part of the covenant legacy was the land, and they had broken it oh so callously for so long in, in such great detail, and they are removed. And in their deportation, we should hear the words of Jesus about the condemned and the judgment to come. Bind them hand and foot, he says, and cast them out into the outer darkness. The holy God will not abide sin, not abide unforgiven sinners. They are cast out. Well, in the fall of Jerusalem, God displays the glory of his holiness. He acts according to his justice by inflicting punishment upon the faithless king, the wicked city, the guilty people. And in so doing, he provides a warning to us because there is an even greater display of divine wrath that awaits the end, the clear biblical teaching of the final judgment, which lies in the future for every one of us, everyone here, everyone will be there. It is in our future destiny when Jesus returns and how, therefore, we should give heed to the obvious lessons of the fall of Jerusalem. The Dutch theologian Wilhelmus of Brockel urges us to awaken to our peril in contrast to heedless Zedekiah to act now to escape the dreadful judgment. Here's what he writes. It is a grievous sign when someone who lives in sin nevertheless does not tremble for the divine judgment. You will tremblingly appear and there the history of your life together with the review of all your private and public sins will be read aloud. This will silence you and the judge will look upon you in wrath and in anger he will address you as a cursed one. Upon this will follow the eternal casting away into the pool which burns with sulfur where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Therefore, repent now. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Well, when Jesus talks about the final judgment, and he often does in the Gospels, he knows that there are two kinds of people who are present on the day of judgment. There's the great multitude of people condemned for their sin, cast away into the eternal fire, Matthew 25, 41. But there are others present in the final day, in the final judgment, who receive blessing with great rejoicing in the same occasion where the wicked are condemned. Jesus tells us that when he returns, this is Matthew 25, uh, he returns, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the peoples who've ever lived will be, will be gathered before him. And he will separate them into two groups prior to the judgment, the goats on one hand and on the other his sheep. And to the sheep he will say, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. Well, it's not surprising then, as we go back in time to the fall of Jerusalem, to see that while there was severe judgment for the king, for the city, and for the mass of the people, there were others who were there, and it was for them a day of salvation. And they become trophies to the saving grace of God. Now, the first inkling that we see of God's saving mercy involves the poorest of the poor. And these are people who'd been suffering long before Nebuchadnezzar came. They were suffering because of their Jewish neighbors. They were suffering because of the oppression and the, and the exploitation that they had received. And these people, it turns out, were not carried off into exile. 
But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, verse 10, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Well, if you know the prophets, how often virtually all the prophets chastised the people, particularly the power brokers, for the way they were exploiting people. They were depriving them. They were cheating them. They, they had schemes to take their land and to leave them in destitution. And now there will be justice. And the irony of God's justice, oh, the wealthy and the prosperous have lost everything. They're in chains going into exile. And the poor will inherit the land. The poor will inherit the earth. We are reminded of Mary's song as she's reflecting on the implications of Jesus' coming birth. And she speaks of God raising up the poor. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. Luke 1, 53. And so the fall of Jerusalem was a day of provision for the afflicted poor. But most prominently here, Jerusalem falls. Jerusalem's fall results in the long-afflicted Jeremiah's liberation. This is for him the day of deliverance. And Nebuchadnezzar, probably because he has a good intelligence service, he knows who Jeremiah is. By the way, we see from the book of Daniel that he's kind of interested in prophet-type people. And he probably has heard about this prophet in the city who was preaching that they should repent and surrender to Babylon. He probably concludes that Jeremiah is part of the loyal pro-Babylon party. And so Nebuchadnezzar gives a command with respect to the prophet. It's in verse 12. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, take him, look after him well, do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. And of course, this is the hand of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was the hand of God's judgment on the city, but he's also the hand of God's favor towards his faithful servant. Well, Phil Riken rightly sees this deliverance as a type of what every believer will receive in the final judgment. He writes that God will not leave behind. He will not ignore. He will not forget. God will not misplace. He will not lose a single believer on the day of judgment. Like Jeremiah, every child of God will be delivered and saved. And Jeremiah is saved because he has friends in high places. Well, to be a Christian is to be a friend, a servant of the Lord of Lords, and he will save his people in the day of wrath. What follows shows the honor that will be bestowed on God's people as a distinguished entourage of Babylonian leaders comes and they pay their respects to the Lord's prophet. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, Nergalsar Ezer, the Rabmag, all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. That's wonderful. Here's this man, he'd been... He'd been subjected to such scorn and abuse when he's cast unjustly into a grim prison. And now he is released with honor, honor sent by the Lord as a mark of the Lord's own commendation. And then he's restored to the care of his faithful friends. Verse 14, they entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. Isn't that wonderful? Now, you remember Gedaliah. He's one of the great members of that godly family of Shaphan, highly placed, and he's been faithful to the Lord. He's been helping Jeremiah. And what a joy it is. Uh, Think of the joy they had. It's really a forced taste of heaven for them to see the faithful servant come home. 
He's delivered in the day of judgment. And he, he hears, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Gedalia, it seems, had also been spared the judgment. In fact, chapter 41 will say that he's made a governor by Nebuchadnezzar. And so we have this procession of these high officials. It's straight out of a Hollywood movie. He is saved, he's delivered, and he is delivered amidst great glory and honor. Well, God had promised to protect Jeremiah all the way back in chapter 1. Jeremiah had trusted him, and now on the day of judgment, his salvation had come. And we're told that he lived among the people. He, he, he went on serving the Lord, uh, being faithful to God and, and to his people. Now, Jeremiah's long witness to God's justice and grace, it had subjected him to so much scorn. They called him a traitor. They abused him as a fool. But you see, the final judgment was a vindication of God's word. Well, likewise, as believers suffer scorn for their preaching of the gospel, for talking about things like this, the second coming of Jesus, but the, the final judgment of a holy God and his wrath on sin, and the world laughs and scorns, but the event will be the vindication of the message. Well, the salvation of one more person forms a postscript to this story of Jerusalem's fall and demise. It, it seems that before the siege happened, we're going we're to go back just a little bit in time. Before the siege ended, the Lord sent Jeremiah to give a message to Ebed-Melech. Remember Ebed-Melech? He's the Ethiopian eunuch who, who learns that Jeremiah is going to die and the cistern he's been thrown in, and he cares it, it, with great courage. He advocates and secures Jeremiah's release. He shows such kindness and mercy, sending the rags down. He's this loving man who served the Lord courageously, and he saved the prophet Jeremiah. Well, God has a message for Ebed-Melech, verses 16 to 18. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. So the judgment's going to happen, just as I said. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. Now those last words tell us what's going on. He's afraid, and who can blame him? He's got a great anxiety. He sees what's happening. He wonders what dreadful end is going to come to his life. And so in kindness, the Lord sends his word, a special message regarding his salvation and, pres and preservation. Well, do you realize that God has given the same assurance to everyone who confesses their sins and looks in faith to the cross where Jesus died, that the whole thought of the final judgment gives you anxiety? But as you trust in Jesus, God has a message from you that you need not be afraid. Romans 8.1, for instance, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not come into judgment through union with Christ in faith. Well, verse 18, I think, is a very fitting conclusion to the record of God's judgment on Jerusalem because it states with crystal clarity what it was that enabled Ebed-Melech out of all these people to be saved. Verse 18, For I will surely save you. You shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. He's going to suffer like everybody else in the fall of Jerusalem. He's going to lose his property, but he's going to live. He's going to have his life as a prize of war. By implication, he would know God's blessing in the aftermath. 
And I think we might be tempted to imagine, well, the reason he's saved because he'd earned it. You know, he's done a great thing for the Lord. He, he, it's, it's, like a, it's like a, it's a reward for good service. He rescued Jeremiah, therefore he is saved. But that's not what we read. In fact, Ebed-Melech was saved before he saved Jeremiah. The reason he cared about the prophet was because he, he had a personal relationship with the Lord according to his word in his saving grace. No, Ebed-Melech is assured of salvation the same way that we are assured of our salvation in the coming day of judgment. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith. Because you trust in me, he said, you will be saved. And by that same faith, you and I need not have any anxiety of the coming day of judgment. Oh, what a dreadful thing. I'm sure as we, the more we think about it, there will be trepidations. What will it actually be like? But we need not fear that we will suffer the condemnation. Ebed Melech, by the way, was a slave from far away in Ethiopia. And, and I hope you know your New Testament. You're going, isn't there an Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts? And he's also saved. There's a connection between them. And that is that God is gathering people from all the world, from every tribe, every color, every race, every culture. He's calling people who, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They hear the gospel. They confess their sins. They look to the cross in faith. And God's word says to everyone, you need not fear the judgment is that is to come because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. No wonder the apostle Paul spoke so glowingly about all evangelists. He said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, the fall of Jerusalem, you remember, was foretold by Jeremiah in considerable detail. And so as we read of that judgment finally happening, we're reminded, I'll close with this, that God's promises always come true. God's warnings, God's threats always come true. His promises do not fail. He told King Zedekiah, if you don't surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then the city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans and they shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape their hands. That's exactly what we find happen, just as the prophet said. And by implication, we should trust that the Bible's warning of the final judgment that is yet to come when Jesus returns, that it too will be true. It, too, is an event that's going to happen. And so are all God's promises concerning the final judgment going to be true. Jesus has promised he will return to the earth and judge the living and the dead. John 5, 25 to 28, for instance. And we can be sure that the Lord will. When he sits on his throne of judgment, he says there will be two kinds of people. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Believers will be pulled out of the judgment. And that, we can trust, will happen. Oh, everyone present on that day is going to be a sinner, but some will be forgiven sinners because they believe the gospel, trusting in Jesus while others rejecting him and rejecting his gospel, they will be judged for their sin. And Jesus even further promised an eternal glory beyond the final judgment for all who come to him in faith. He promised that then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, 43. My friends, that too is our destiny 
if we are in Christ. Well, the final judgment will be the great climactic end of all history. And yet it is not the decisive time in all history because the decisive time in history for you is right now. It is in the present as the gospel is proclaimed and either received in faith or rejected in pride and folly. It is in that way that that future eternal and final destiny is decided. And so I think a final, appropriate final word, an application is given by the prophet Isaiah. A hundred years before Jeremiah, he was preaching the same thing, and now he preaches this to you. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Father, we thank you for the record of the fall of Jerusalem. It's not the kind of thing we like to read about, but Father, we need to be made wise. We need to awaken to the peril of sin and judgment. And so, Father, I pray that by trusting in Jesus, we would be relieved of distress. But Lord, there are many others who have not yet believed, so let us be distressed for them. Let us pray for the unbeliever. Let us take the risk of sharing the gospel. And Father, cause each of us to believe, and by believing in Jesus, that we would be saved. We pray in his name. Amen.